everybody, this is Cameron in the edit, just letting you know that later on in the episode, there is a conversation about a piece of fanfic from the early 2000s in EverQuest that has a sexual assault in it. So it's a fairly light discussion, but just letting you know what's going on with that. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode, and I'll let you get right to it. Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies. I'm Cameron. And I'm Michael. I forgot the other part where it's just the parts we know about. Uh, this is a show, in case you haven't listened to an episode before, it's a show where Michael and I read academic books of game studies and we talk about them. We mm -hmm. kind of summarize them a little bit, talk about the ideas within them, uh, talk about how they relate to some other stuff in game studies. Uh, so that means if you're uh, someone who's thinking about being a game studies academic, uh, then this might be helpful for you. If you're a designer or a developer who doesn't have time to read these books yourself, but you want to know... Uh, what's going on in them, uh, this show is probably for you. If you're someone who's um, a game studies academic already and you read this book before and you forgot all the parts of it and you want to revisit <laughs> it, this also is probably for you. Uh, so that's the general vibe of the show. If you haven't listened before, we've got 37 other episodes before this one. If you want to go back and check them all out, uh, you can see all of those at rangedtouch.com. But this is episode 38. And uh, today, Michael, we're talking about T.O. Taylor's Play Between Worlds, Exploring Online Game Culture. From 2006. Uh, from 2006, a, a little bit of an older book for us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, generally we talk about uh, three types of books. Or, you know, three broad, this is not every book we've <laughs> talked about, but here's like three broad categorizations of what we do. Uh, and certainly behind the scenes we think of it this way. Um, you know, we do shows, uh, we do books on the show that are classics in the field. That's one type of book that we do. You know, big books that everyone's engaging with, everyone's talking about, you know, big standard bears. We do books that are really new that we think are interesting. You know, so books published in the last two, three years that uh, really stand out to us as changing the field or doing something interesting. And then we do big, weird, way out of, uh, out of line books. <laughs> <laughs> and those are books that we think should be uh, kind of canonical to the field or, or books that have been overlooked in the field. Or sometimes they're just books we want to read and uh, think would be cool to think of through a game studies context. And I think this book, you know, you tell me, we actually didn't really talk about this uh, beforehand. But in my mind, this is in that first category in big books that are important to the field. Is that is that how you approach this, Michael? I, I guess I would suppose, yes. Uh, I have not read this book before, uh, before we did it for this show, uh, for no other reason than the book was about uh, MMOs, which is not a thing that I am interested in. Uh, but I would say I, I most reading that I have done on MMOs, like, cites this book, right? This I think this kind of lays a lot of groundwork for that type of research. And I will also say that having read the book now, I should not have discounted it based on the fact that it was about MMOs because it, I mean, one, it's really good. I think uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here. And two, I think there's a lot of things that Taylor can pull out of the study of MMOs that ends up being applicable to a lot of other things. And then also, frankly, uh, and this is my fault, like the way that games themselves have kind of shifted in the year since 2006 means that a lot of games coming out right now are closer to MMOs than they were to regular games, you know, standalone releases uh, back in 2006. So in some ways, right, this this book like rises to kind of the occasion of history. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, there is a way that this book, I, I felt that a lot too while I was reading it, where I thought, oh yeah, the, this book has become more and more relevant simply because I think if you go back, you know, and we look at, it's a little bit after this book comes out, but say, uh, if we compare uh, World of Warcraft, uh, which is not really addressed very much in this book, if at all, um, but if we look at World of Warcraft and then we look at, say, um, Assassin's Creed, which comes out a little bit later, but something like Assassin's Creed, you know, big, standard-bearing, uh, single-player action game. Yeah, comes out the, mm-hmm. the, the first one comes out the year after this, 2007, so it's yeah. right there. Yeah, it's right there. Um, you know, if we compare those two things, we're going to think, oh, yeah, these are, like, wildly different games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, there's a big gulf between there. So there might be some shared assumptions and some shared design ideas and some shared maybe um, ways of, of using aesthetic maneuvers and things like that. But they're very, very different, and they probably require radically different methods. Um, you know, Ubisoft, uh, the Assassin's Creed uh, developer and publisher, uh, after a long time, you know, more than 10 years of making these games as single player action games have just announced that the, or announced recently, I should say that Assassin's Creed is going to become a kind of games as a service, live service game mm-hmm. that is kind of always connected. And it's maybe a bunch of different experiences and big question mark might have multiplayer, you know, kind of assumptions built into it. Um, and you know, uh, the, so there's a way that like the things that looked the furthest away from what's going on in, you know, MMOs versus a lot of other game types, those have run into each other. I mean, you could use this book. I don't know if, you know, this is not how academic work works. There we go. Got it. Um, but, uh, one could, if you wanted to, and you know, if you were teaching maybe an undergraduate class or you're writing an undergraduate paper in game studies, you could look at destiny and just analyze it through this book. Um, because all the tools mm-hmm. to talk about basically everything destiny is doing are already here, um, in this book that is predominantly about EverQuest. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you that there's this way that, uh, a lot of the world of games has kind of moved toward, um, the methods that, that Taylor is using, or, or rather I should say the methods that Taylor is using are very, very useful outside of just MMOs and the assumptions that are built into MMOs here. Um, but, uh, so you, so you'd never read it before. Um, had you encountered it in any kind of way or had you encountered TL Taylor's work? Yeah, I'd read Taylor on, um, uh, Twitch streaming. Mm-hmm. the the watch me playbook uh which is i think i think that's her most recent book uh so everything kind of you know you can see uh, just to talk a little bit about taylor uh uh she is the professor of co- she is a professor of comparative media studies at mit uh she has written a couple of other books um one is the one that comes after this is raising the stakes esports and the professionalization of computer gaming and then the most uh, recent book is Watch Me Play Twitch and the Rise of Game Live Streaming. Uh, so you can kind of see how Taylor, I mean, Taylor uh, posi- positions herself in this book as talking about kind of a, a new edge in, in game studies because, you know, uh, fully 3D virtual graphical worlds like EverQuest were kind of a, a new thing in 2006. Uh, I don't remember the specific year that EverQuest starts, but I know like World of Warcraft was 2004. 
four sometime around there. Mm-hmm. So I think EverQuest is nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, as I say, EverQuest like it comes before it definitely. So uh, we have you know this this kind of new thing uh, that's very different from uh, like the old text based uh, multiplayer dungeons and things like that. Uh, and it's really kind of in this space of uh, the like the mediated online sociality of games that that Taylor works. So you can track that through, you know, esports and, and professionalization of computer gaming and then to Twitch itself. Uh, this book, uh, Play Between Worlds, is an ethnography. Uh, so it is and, and Taylor is her PhD is in sociology. Uh, and the material is approached as a sociologist, right? How do these games uh, operate as occasions or uh, objects that bring different sorts of people together? And then how does that bringing people together result in kind of the formulation of new kinds of social structures or, you know, interpersonal hierarchies or relationships and, and things of that nature. So it's, uh, you know, in, in a way, it's similar to a previous book that we read, like uh, Celia Pierce's Communities of Play, which I actually think, you know, came out at around the same time as this book. So they're doing kind of similar work uh, in parallel. But the object that they end up working with is is very different, uh, just in terms of the fact that Pierce is trying to trace like a group of players who and what do they do after the game that they are playing together gets shut down. Uh, whereas here with Taylor, uh, because the, because EverQuest did not get shut down, <laughs> very much did not get shut down, uh, we get kind of this whole history of how the game itself. Uh, changes in response to uh, different habits of the players and uh, like how the players also kind of come up with their own new ways of acting in regard to how the game changes or like things that they want in the game that aren't there. How do they uh, make kind of workarounds to that? And then how does the game change in response? Uh, Mm -hmm. So they are very similar in some ways. Uh, they're doing similar types of work, uh, but because of the objects that they're looking at are so different, you get a lot of, uh, there's a lot of overlap, but then a lot of things that make each book kind of unique in its own sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 it is, it is really interesting to, to see someone um, doing the initial stages work of stitching all of this together. Um, and, and I think that's something really important to say, especially if you like sit down and just to read this book, you know, what you just said a minute ago, Michael, uh, which I think might, uh, sound weird if you're not an academic, uh, is you said, uh, you know, EverQuest comes out in 1999 and World of Warcraft is already out, you know, by the time that, that this book rolls around to 2006. And you said, uh, you know, it was a fairly new phenomenon. <laughs> yes. And in, in, in the world of, you know, non-academic publishing or in the world of even academic publishing today, which moves at a lightning speed compared to what it did even 10 years ago, Um you might be thinking, oh, that was uh, seven years in between those two things happening. That doesn't seem to be relatively recent in any kind of way. Um, but due to the to, to the both academic publishing timelines, which are pretty long, but also just the work of academic work, um, you know, it doesn't seem to me that Taylor, I mean, actually Taylor explains in this book about how she came to um, encounter EverQuest, you know, she heard people talking about it. And so it was already kind of ascendant and had a lot of players before she even got involved. Um, and then she put a couple years into it, into Mm -hmm. doing this work and then she published the book. And so it might sound as if like, you know, uh, 
seven years is both a long time and when you're doing and at the same time when you're doing a kind of qualitative research project like this Mm -hmm. it's not that long really um you know i don't think for people who are doing this kind of especially sociological or anthropological work um you know you need to track things and talk about them over an amount of time and and she says something to that effect near the end of the book I, i don't remember the exact language she uses but something like you know uh, trying to do research on a moving train, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's constantly moving. And there are all these places in this book where she says something to the effect of, when I was doing the research, X, Y, Z happened. But now, at the time of publication, you know, ABC has happened. And so there's a lot of having to couch and then talk about things almost in their kind of historical context of, this is the way a thing was. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to say about this, too, is that obviously in that amount of time, you know, from the launch of EverQuest, and even before that with MUDs and Moos and things of that nature, which come up in the book, uh, there's a lot of research on virtual world stuff, you know, people doing that work. And I think what makes this book uh, really noteworthy and kind of puts it in the big game studies classic, you know, kind of um, category is that Taylor is doing a lot of stitching work here. Mm-hmm. Um, Taylor's doing a huge amount of work to say, Here's all the pieces, uh, you know, obviously not literally every piece, but here are a bunch of pieces from the kind of 1990s multi-user dungeon uh, 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 academic work. Here's how that stuff moves into the 3D world of EverQuest. And here's how other pieces of game studies that might not really be talking about uh, things like EverQuest, you know, MMOs, here's how that form of argument appears and, and is kind of altered in the context of MMOs, and here's how other people who have studied EverQuest and and games like it, here's how their arguments kind of interface with EverQuest. So, you know, I think that, you know, you said you like the book, and I really like the book as well, um, despite also kind of like you, my research area being very far away from kind Mm -hmm. of the concerns uh, that animate this book. But what I found really uh, helpful about it, and this is the second time I've read it, but what I found what I found really helpful about it the first time and what I found really helpful about it on rereading is that uh, Taylor does such a good job of put, pulling those threads together and then saying, okay, here's why that matters in a broader sense. Mm-hmm. You know, um, She does a very good job of kind of like saying, all right, here's all the materials on the ground and then taking kind of one meta step up or one kind of layer of abstraction up and saying, this is what this means for, for example, the way that, um, um, uh, uh, gosh, what, what do you call them? Like these external programs that you can use while playing EverQuest. Here's what it actually means to use those. And here's how people talk about using them. And so with all that information, uh, we can then make determinations about, you know, how do people think about the game in a broad sense? So. Um, really, really helpful to me in that way and really helpful for kind of getting an understanding of what in the early 2000s at the kind of birth of the pop, the mass popularization of these kinds of games, what was actually going on. Um, and, you know, she does both uh, her own kind of first person research, you know, um, um, what's it called? Participant observer research. Mm-hmm. And then does some interviews, too, which are which are pretty helpful. Uh, and some of them some are, sometimes are really funny. Um mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, just listening to anyone talk about their favorite game always ends up being kind of funny. Um, but uh, we'll get to that as we get into the book. Um, any Anything else you want to say here at the top, Michael? Uh, just to uh, another book that I wanted to mention that uh, Taylor co-wrote is Ethnography in Virtual Worlds, A Handbook of Methods. And when we're talking about, you know, stitching things together, uh, 
literally like, uh, you know, a, she is one of several people. So this is co-authored with um, uh, Olstorf, Nardi and Pierce, uh, who we already mentioned, Celia Pierce. Uh, like mm-hmm. th- these are people who are trying to, uh, you know, extend ethnographic and sociological methods into uh, multiplayer digital game space. So uh, when, when we when we say like, you know, when we say that Taylor does a good job of pulling all of these pieces together, like not only is that just like a thing that is being done, uh, it is it is like the original work, right? It is the thrust of the book. And I think, uh, you know, you've already said it, but I think the thing that is really cool or one of the things that is very cool is precisely how at every turn Taylor is saying, like, here's what everyone said about muds and moos in the past decade. And here is how this just carries forward into this graphical context. And then here's what the graphical context and sort of the the corporate context really because these mm-hmm. these things are so different, right? Uh, here is what that does to those things. It's 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 such a great example of what scholarship can be when you take an idea and then kind of run it through a new arena and pay careful attention to what the new arena does to change the original idea. Are we ready to talk about chapter one? Yeah, uh, chapter one, uh, finding new worlds is uh, both an introduction to kind of the subject, uh, but also an introduction to the method because it is largely speaking Taylor's first person narrative of attending an EverQuest convention in Boston and just all of all of the things that come with that uh, and what the like the specific things that were done at the convention, but also like and does not shy away from this, the the social awkwardness, the weirdness of walking into this room full of a bunch of strangers, some of whom in theory are not in fact strangers because they're people you've played with before, but they're not people you've necessarily ever seen or heard. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this, you know, it's kind of a traditional introduction in some ways because it is laying out just kind of like what's going on. Why write this book? Uh, you know, what's the purpose? And what really stuck out to me, and I'm curious, you know, uh, the, this book is pretty interesting, I think, because probably different things stick out to different people. But what really sticks out to me about this kind of first person narrative that Taylor is telling about going to the the con and kind of getting there a little bit too early mm-hmm. <laughs> and like trying to be sociable because, um, you know, she's trying to do this this kind of first person narrative and think through it. Uh, but what really sticks out to me is throughout this whole kind of, I think it's a two-day event, if, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. I think so. Um, throughout the whole thing is that what she keeps pulling out are moments where uh, your online in EverQuest life is fully caught up in your real-world life. Um, and that this your physical embodied existence at this um, uh, meetup is wholly determined in some ways by the digital world that you're not even in at this moment. So, you know, things that stick out to me are uh, that everyone, everyone who is walking around has a name tag on and your server is on your name tag. Mm -hmm. So, so the server that you play on, of which there are not that many, apparently um, it's on. So you're able to say, okay, uh, this person plays on my server and you have kind of an immediate connection because you're playing, uh, you know, you've played in the same space. She also talks about this person who is apparently known for handing out flowers in the game. Yeah. Who hands all the women a long-stemmed rose because that's like a thing he does in the game. Yeah. Um, 
Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love what she says about this, where she's like, I didn't, basically she says, I didn't want to hurt his feelings and like make this whole thing off awkward, but I didn't want to carry this rose around all day. So I just broke it in half and put it in my backpack. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's, uh, it's both an example of what you said, right? The, the, the online EverQuest behavior getting wrapped up in the real world interaction, uh, but then also just the the awkwardness is like, you know, well, now I got to carry around this rose while I'm looking for the people that I know from the game. In addition to, you know, like my I guess there's like a swag bag or something they get, you know, all of the things mm-hmm. that people have. Mm-hmm. Very much the, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, just the like because she said something to the effect of like, th- this is where having a digital inventory is better. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, I think that's the what game, she says. Yeah, in the game, you don't have to carry this thing around. Um, but, uh, oh, the other thing that's really interesting about this, too, is that someone immediately steals a banner from the lobby. Mm-hmm. And they have to be like, look, you know, the, the community manager who's running this event, you know, gets on the PA and is like, listen, if you return this soon, you know, no questions asked. But if uh, we're going to check the security tapes and uh, if we determine who stole this banner you're getting banned from the video game. <laughs> it's and, such a con. Uh, it, like not not it, like a, it is. Not like conning like tricking, but like this is such a like we have gotten together for a convention kind of thing. Yes. Yes, like super super fans uh who are doing it. Um but uh but this all kind of like heads toward an argument, I guess. Um I do do you want do you want to talk about the kind of argument of chapter 1 here? Yeah, uh <clears throat> So, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Taylor is going to come back to throughout this book and one of the things that this chapter is trying to lay out is precisely what we've already sort of gestured to is the ways that uh, the the online and the offline uh, cannot be held separate, that they're always kind of uh, leaking into each other or influencing each other. And not only that, right, in kind of, you know, a, a pure dualism of online and offline, uh, but there's stuff kind of being pulled in here about, like, gender identity, right? Again, see the dude who's handing out roses, but he specifically only hands out roses to women. Um, and Taylor remarks mm-hmm. upon that. She's like, well, hmm, that's a choice. Uh and that's a, that's not something that is in the game. That is something that comes kind of from the broader culture that gets pulled down into the social interactions and then into the game itself. And then that loops back out into, you know, him doing this at the convention in person. Uh, but she thinks through then uh, you know, her kind of. She walks through then uh, how she started playing EverQuest and uh contemplates how she made choices there that impacted both her kind of early socialization in the game uh and then you know what are the consequences for that for for kind of you know meeting in person so she talks about how for instance she is playing she plays as a gnome uh because uh a a thing that gets brought up later and and thing that we're at this point probably pretty familiar with the uh, female character models in EverQuest were, you know, exaggerated and sexualized in a way that uh, Taylor wasn't too hot on. Uh, and so she went with the gnomes, which were kind of 
the least uh, uh, grabby in that sort of way. Um, mm-hmm. But then she also talks about how there's this interesting sort of effect there where it means that, you know, people in the game are going to treat you differently if you're a little gnome than if you're, you know, a you know sexy elf in chain mail or whatever. Right. That that, you know, determines kind of the the online interactions uh in its own way. And then also the the issue of like, what is your player class? Uh, I think she says she plays as a necromancer. Oh, she has two characters, mm-hmm. actually, but she uh, the, the gnome is a necromancer. And the thing that is sort of key there is that the necromancer can uh, kind of solo the game a little bit longer than certain other classes can. And I think the other class she plays is like a warrior or barbarian or something. Um, I think barbarian in EverQuest is a... Uh, race rather oh, than a class okay. and so I think she plays a barbarian warrior oh, oh great if I'm not mistaken yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic video games <laughs> video games <laughs> um, uh, so but that uh, you know and that's a very different experience because uh, when you're uh, like that is a character that fits into parties earlier on and then like has a certain job within parties that is very distinct from a necromancer, which is, of course, more kind of, you know, spell casting, sort of stay back and do things. Whereas if you're a, a, a warrior barbarian, uh, you're up there like actually fighting. And uh, she talks about feeling like the differences in responsibility, uh, which are not, you know, like she feels both of those things, but the the way that you approach the game through your player and your class uh, determines what the social space of that game feels like. So then she wants to talk about and the, the quote that I pulled out here, right? Sort of the, the overall then uh, kind of thing that she wants to do throughout this book. But uh, the, the point she wants to make in this chapter is from page 18. My hope is to show that the very notion of being able to bound off what is game and not game is not a particularly fruitful way of understanding these spaces, either as games or via their status as cultural space. Uh, and then she sort of his, uh, contextualizes this, uh, saying that in the 90s and kind of the turn of the millennium, as people are doing sort of digital world research, there's a there's a real fixation on figuring out what is kind of the game world and then what is the real world or, or you know, establishing a kind of binary or like the research uh, tends to go in assuming the binary exists and then looks for ways to maintain that binary. And one of the things Taylor is trying to point out is that, you know, the the game is kind of structuring the way that I can be sociable here and not and there's not just one way that that happens. There are multiple ways that that can happen depending on one who the player is uh, and what they want to do. But then, you know, how many characters do you have? Do you switch between characters like she does in kind of this early chapter? Uh, you know, there, there's a there's a thickness and a complexity to these interactions, not only between people, but between kind of the online and the offline uh, that Taylor wants to underscore at every turn. Mm-hmm. And there's the additional uh, uh, kind of implicit and explicit some places in this book response to cultural anecdotes about gameplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what what Taylor seems really invested in is kind of complicating and in some cases just obliterating the idea that when someone is sitting at the computer by themselves that they are alone mm-hmm. uh, or that they are isolated or that they are being asocial mm-hmm. um you know she she constantly talks about across the book you know three or four places about this kind of imaginary figure of you know the the lonely adolescent boy who sits in front of the computer and by you know 
by himself all day and has do, never goes outside and has no social interaction. You know, and she's trying to say, look, at every turn in EverQuest, every place, in the moment of gameplay, in the moment of dealing with the software, in the moment of talking about what is good or bad in the game, in the moment of looking at websites with information about it, you know, guild stuff, anything, every single part of that is, uh, as they say, predicated on the social. <laughs> you know, that, that, that you are seeing the social happening in every single one of those instances. Uh, almost at every turn, EverQuest is going to jam you at some point into a social situation where you have to talk to or deal with or interact with other people to play the game. And so she's really invested in kind of working through that and explaining how that's happened in all of these different ways. Uh, it is striking me now, uh, 30 minutes into this uh, show, that if people don't know what EverQuest is, <laughs> then we might need to explain that. Um, and, and it's explained in the book if you, if you want, like, the true deep dive. But, um, it you know, it is an, an early MMO, mm -hmm. you know, massively multiplayer online game. Mm -hmm. It's an MMORPG, in fact. Um, it is a game where you pick a character and very much in a kind of traditional Dungeons and Dragons, as we've talked about already, race and class. So you pick a kind of uh, character type and then you pick the type of job they have. And there's like a million of both of those. It's actually pretty wide in EverQuest, much larger, I think, than World of Warcraft at launch. Yeah. And then you go into this world uh, and then you do some adventuring. EverQuest is split up into, because of computer um, capability at the time, it's split up into zones. And so some things that you might be uh, familiar with in contemporary MMOs are not things that exist in EverQuest. Uh, so, for example, um, if you uh, aggro an enemy and are being attacked by an enemy, if you play World of Warcraft or you play kind of anything at this point, you can run far enough away from that thing that it will forget about you and go back to doing what it was doing. That was not the case in EverQuest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you had to leave the zone <laughs> in order for it to stop. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, about like you know how that works out and how that creates a social situation. Um, uh, it was certainly not, at least not in the, for the first few years, it was not geared as much toward in-game rating. So there was not this kind of idea that you would play through the game and then get to quote, quote unquote, what we now call in-game content where you're like the maximum level and you're just playing this kind of different game. Mm -hmm. Um, that was a part of it with world bosses and things like that. But that was, it, it seems like based on this book that I'm reading, that was uh, something that was eventually added and developed more thoroughly for um, due to player demand. Things that you might associate with games now, like guilds, where like a guild system is built into the game, or a clan system that allows you to uh, have an in-game interface that allows you to um, put a bunch of people together and create chat groups and things like that. That was not initially in EverQuest, and so you needed to use external things like forums or websites in order to facilitate that. Um, and to keep track of who was in it. There was no way to keep track of who was in your mm -hmm. guild in the game initially. Um, so it really is, you know, and there's a thousand other differences there, right? But um, at some points during the show, I think we're going to be talking about things. And if you're, your familiarity with this type of game is only World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy XIV or whatever, it's going to sound very, very alien to what you understand. And that's because... EverQuest is kind of the, uh, you know, shares a lot of building blocks with those games, but is a lot more, I would say, player hostile in a broad sense. It is not particularly interested in making the gameplay experience easy or fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and had a lot more, um, 
I would say uh, opportunity for the social play that T.L. Taylor is talking about. Meaning that if you wanted to do more complex things with the game, other than going out and hitting enemies with a sword, you are going to have to interact with other people. Um, and in fact, I would I say I, I think that that's actually one of the biggest differences between EverQuest, as, as Taylor is talking about in this book, and MMOs as we play them today, is that for the most part, those games can largely be played as single-player experiences for the vast majority of them. Um, you know, you can play all the way through up through max level in World of Warcraft without ever interacting with another human being if you want to. Um, you can just quest and, and go through it. Um, same thing. I, I haven't played Final Fantasy XIV, but I'm given to understand it functions roughly the same way. Um, you know, if you want to do thing, it, basically anything other than PvP or um, uh, what do you call it or raiding. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or like difficult dungeon stuff, dungeon mastery and things like that. Everything else in the game is so lowable. Um, in EverQuest, that is not the case. Uh, if, you, if you are a warrior, you need someone to hang out with you and heal you regularly because you just can't do that. Right. Um, and, and so there's a uh, at the bottom, at the core of EverQuest is, is an assumption that you're going to be sociable and you're going to get other people to play with you. Whereas that has largely been modulated or minimized i think in mmo design since the early 2000s i i think that's a a very fair kind of assessment and i think a a really good example of that which can maybe get us into chapter two uh is that Mm -hmm. when everquest launches there's no like fast travel system or anything like that like you when, when you're traveling places in everquest you have to like you know get on a boat and then like sit on that boat as it moves in like you know quote unquote real time essentially uh but the other thing is there are certain classes like, you know, spellcasters, wizards or what have you. I think druids, uh, druids, the eternal enemy <sighs> um, uh, who can do like teleport spells. And so uh, to your point that you're saying, like if in early EverQuest before they built in kind of a fast travel and teleport system, if you wanted to get quickly from one place to another, you had to like go into town, find a druid and see if they would teleport you. Yep, you gotta go talk to people. You gotta go do that. And there's like, uh, there's this discussion that before some, uh, I think Planes of Power is, uh, no, Ruins of Kunark is is the first one, and then Planes of Power really changes it. Um, but uh, but Taylor is talking about how you know before the game adds these larger modes of of transportation, um, that was the only option. There and there's like this you know world for a cottage industry of like port fees and things like that, which were in World of Warcraft as well. Uh, early on uh what what's really interesting to me you know even when that changes so she's talking about how in ruins of kunark um she's talking about how how the way the teleportation system or the way the kind of fast travel system works in that game or or in the game at that point was that you would go to like a big teleporter room and you would talk to a character who would give you a token to go to like city a and, you know, I could talk to a character who would give me a token to go to City B. And every seven minutes, the teleporter would, would, you know, click, it would go, and you would get teleported to wherever your token took you. Um, so it's this kind of mass teleportation thing. But even that, you know, is not individualistic in any kind of way. You're having to sit there for that seven-minute wait time. It's like sitting in an elevator, mm-hmm. right? There's You're just burning time. You're talking to people. You're doing whatever. It purposely creates a social condition. You know, similar if you played World of Warcraft or you've played World of Warcraft, World of Warcraft Classic. That's a hard one for me. 
Um, if you've played uh, any, so WoW at the beginning or uh, WoW Classic recently, then uh, you, you know you can think about something like the boats mm-hmm. that you can use for travel. You know, sitting on that boat, I ended up talking to all kinds of people mm-hmm. uh, on those boats because uh, you you were there for a few minutes as the zone loaded. <laughs> Um, so they're, you know, uh, interesting stuff, um, uh, as far as that's concerned. But yeah, I think that does take us to chapter two, chapter two, gaming life worlds, social play and persistent environments. Uh, so in addition to sort of talking about, you know, what we just talked about, which is the, the ways that this game is kind of constantly pressing players out to interact with each other, uh, the kind of first half or third of this chapter is, is kind of a historical overview of, uh, like EverQuest itself, like what is it? How many users does it have? Kind of facts of, of that nature, but then also what is the history of this kind of uh, multiplayer online uh, environment? And we talk about like Habitat from LucasArts, which I think has maybe come up on the show before. Definitely, I think in the Pierce mm-hmm. book, um, Tiny Mud, Ultima Online, uh, you know, kind of the '90s. Uh, what you have in your uh, notes here was kind of this '90s push for virtual worlds. Uh, yeah, for specifically metaverses, yes. which is surreal to read this book this month where, you know, Facebook specifically, you know, Epic has been pushing this for a while, but um, Facebook is specifically pushing the the idea of VR enabled uh, kind of meeting platforms, you know, Zoom Plus, basically, um, but specifically under the term of metaverse adapted from, uh, for the most part, Neil Stevenson's work. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, it's really weird to read this book right now and kind of feel like you're living in a time warp. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really cool thing here that she kind of talks about is not kind of talks about. She does talk about it. A cool thing here that she talks about is uh, like starting areas and how uh, like in an in an, in an MMO, you'll have your starting area. You'll work through that. You'll go out and, you know, play a bunch of game content and then you can come back to your starting area. And there's this kind of weird nostalgia that you have for what the game was like when you were uh, first starting out. Uh, And this is kind of her in for talking about how, uh, you know, when you are playing an MMO and especially an MMO like EverQuest, uh, which at this point is, is so much about like, you know, uh, throwing the ad- the individual atoms of these players together uh, is, is straight up a socialization process. As, and that's what she calls it, where you learn not just the rules of the game itself, like the systems and how they work, but like all of the etiquette that has been built up kind of before your arrival in terms of if you need to ask a druid in town to teleport you somewhere, uh, how do you do that in a polite way that does not make that player, you know, angry at you and, you know, more likely to then actually acquiesce to your request. Uh, and I think there's uh, isn't there like an entire book about this uh, with regard to Eve online? Mm. Or am I making that up? <laughs> <laughs> about teleporting people not teleporting but like this this kind of like this argument about like the socialization process of the multiplayer game oh, oh probably I, yeah there is an edited volume i think by um uh one of the editors is uh kelly bergstrom and uh and, and a couple other people too i just know know uh kelly's work specifically but yeah absolutely there's a lot of kind of sociological work of this bent specifically talking about the way that people interact with each other uh, about Eve Online. I don't know about the specific book that you're talking about, but absolutely, there's a whole kind of dominant subfield of Eve Online studies that really looks at it as th- this type of phenomenon. So, um, so, so yes, yeah, 
I would say. Okay, it was just it was a thing that I thought of because I was like, man, I think I've read about this like quite a bit with regard to Eve. But the the, the sort of point mm-hmm. that Taylor wants to make is that this isn't something the designers put in there. Like the designers did not write into the rule set, you know, if you are a druid, here is how you recognize someone asking you politely for a teleportation spell. Uh, like that's a thing that emerges from uh, the person who is playing the druid and sort of like, you know, you have enough people playing druids and uh, the, the way that, you know, I hate to use a word like naturally, but, you know, these kind of social structures just sort of bubble up as norms get established in terms of how you're supposed to treat other people in the game. What is rude? What is not rude? What is a fair price to charge if you're uh, charging a fee for this and and that sort of thing? And she says, you know, this is uh, what she call it. Um, It is a uh, yeah, is a much broader game apparatus. This is from page 32, a socio-technical one that goes well beyond the artifact contained in the off-the-shelf box the game purchaser first encounters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the... Uh, little did we know that the social is defined by its exclusions. (laughs) But this is the place where that's happening, right? Where behavior is being disciplined. Um, And, you know, I I mean disciplined in the kind of Foucauldian sense and the idea that there are uh, structures that emerge out of material conditions and social preconditions that, you know, create frameworks that you either have to live within uh, or that you purposefully disrupt. Um, And there's a whole lot of, of, uh, you know... Um, EverQuest is a moment where trolling people within the game and doing silly things and then narrativizing it becomes really popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, that becomes a thing. In fact, I would say that a lot of my early interaction, I never played EverQuest, although, uh, you know, Danny, uh, my Mage's Murder Dad's uh, co-host, uh, we'll talk about EverQuest for a long time if, if you uh, provoke him to do Why so. Why didn't we pull Danny but, in here? <laughs> I, you know what? I just thought he's not going to want to, he's not going to want to sit around for the book part. (laughs) I did think about uh, what if I just go and talk to him and I say, Hey, five minutes, summarize whatever quest is. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that right now. So here, here is Danny summarizing EverQuest in five minutes or less. Okay. EverQuest. Mm -hmm. EverQuest by no means is, a game that did anything first, right? Came out mm-hmm. in 1999. Mamorpager, M-M-O-R-P-G, had already been coined for a couple of years at that point. I think Richard Garriott coined that term. So Ultima was already a thing in the late 90s. I think EverQuest may have even, I think Asheron's Call may have beaten EverQuest to it. Um, but I will say EverQuest is probably the first game where it all came together. The alchemy all adhered right. And it just completely dominated what an MMORPG would end up being. Uh, To the point where World of Warcraft, like a lot of the developers were just like guild leaders from EverQuest. And if I only had five minutes to like convey what everquest is and can i ask you a question uh sure so you're i guess you're kind of the the work you're reading i haven't read it 
you just told mm-hmm. me like the byline. It's about like the social connections formed on the game. Is that is that kind of Ooh, what it's talking sort of about? sort of it's like a sociological analysis of what's going on. So like you know, there's chapters about um, like uh, how uh, women interact with the game. There's chapters mm-hmm. about power gaming and like mm-hmm. what that looked like at the time. There's uh, a chapter about who owns what. So like, is it okay to use external software? That kind of thing. Mm. So I was thinking about, okay, how do I talk about EverQuest without just talking about the genre? Like, right? And mm-hmm. and I feel like if you're asking me, I, you know, because of my deep personal history with the game, like I, I, I bought this game probably in the year 2000 and like convinced all of my like closest friends to play it. And we like played it together for a while. Um, I would, I'm going to tell you, the way the game worked and like how that informed so like this host of like the way people interacted. So the way the game worked is that, you know, it's typical MMO stuff. You you like can go into a dungeon, but the dungeon is not a personal experience. You're, You're not going to have like an adventure there. The dungeon is this living, breathing place. And, the dungeon's populated by mobs, mobile objects from like mud terminology. And those mobs all have like, they're either, uh, they either like when they spawn, they either go on a patrol or they're just static, right? Well, all static mobs in EverQuest are like in the game community associated with locations. And this is not something that is programmed into the game. This is something that, like, the community had to come up with, right? And those monsters in, like, oh, so if you're in Crushbone, which is the, like, the, the, this kingdom of the orcs on the continent Fadewear, you might have, uh, you know, locations called, like, the Throne Room or the Eastern Wall, right? These are the kind of locations, So because you would go into this dungeon, there might be 20 people already there, right? And because of the way that experience is gained, which experience is gained when you kill a monster, but specifically when you deal the most damage to a monster, right? Uh, That means if you have multiple groups rolling around in a zone and they're like, how do you determine who who is entitled to kill a monster, right? So the solution that everybody came up with is the camp system, which is like a server just, it's known that like the throne room is a camp and it involves these mobs that spawn in these locations. And if you're in the throne room and you're pulling from some other location across the moat, you're you're impinging on someone else's camp, right? So... I'm telling you all this because this is just not something that happens in MMOs to my knowledge now. Is this idea that if you wanted to log on and go to Crushbone, you're like, I'm going to have an adventure. You could go there and be like, okay, I'm looking for a group. And if all the groups are filled up, you're done. You can't do anything. The best (laughs) you could possibly do is like scrounge around for like scraps, for like maybe a patrolling mob that is not controlled by the camp system. And when there are groups of people that like defy the camp system, you report them to the GM and they get a talking to. 
They get like enough demerits, they might get their account banned, etc. But more importantly, like the leveling system was just so punitively slow that like there were real problems if you like hurt your reputation by like uh, defying these communal rules. I think that's what I would say if I were to like if I were to tell you what EverQuest is. It's kind of that. That is like where all of the the social emerges is from those kind of mechanics that like basically necessitate player interaction. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting, and it does not come up in the book even a little bit. <laughs> so well, it's good to good to get tell you then. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thanks for doing that. No worries. Okay. Okay. Oh, now, uh, now you've heard it. Uh, that's that's great, but. But so there was a lot of this kind of um, making um, making narrative or making, uh, you know, funny stuff that's about breaking these social contexts. Um, this goes all the way into, uh, you know, the um, I mean, there are, there are whole like trolling guilds that exist in EverQuest and early world, world of Warcraft to be doing this thing. But this is all to say that if you were around World of Warcraft or you've played WoW Classic, I'm going to say this a few times probably over the course of the episode, I'm sorry, but, um, and you're aware of the phenomenon of Baron's Chat, mm-hmm. this is the same thing. Uh, you know, Taylor's not talking about that, but it's the idea that this is a, uh, that there are zones in the game where new players are funneled into it, and they are at the point in the game where it's beginning to open up and they're having to learn how to play their classes in specific ways, and the everyone else is telling them how they're supposed to interact with the world. And they can do that very aggressively, and they can do that really meanly, or they can do that really politely. Those are all in the... Um, you know, within the purview, you know, I, and I would say that's something that's really interesting about the book is I would say that Taylor tends to stay away from the more extreme affects, mm-hmm. um, in the sense of like, you don't really see a lot in this book about, you know, hate speech or the way that people can be really, really mean to each other. There's some hints here or there. Like she talks about in this section about how, um, uh, if you're being annoying, players will train monsters onto you to kill you mm-hmm. <laughs> and will just purposefully, you know, using abusing the system of the game and how they understand how it works in order to make a monster attack you that you can't defend yourself against and you'll just die. Um, but my experience, certainly when it gets to, to Baron's chat or something like that, is that there is just as much kind of negative and stereotypical community construction as there is positive community construction. So it's not... And I don't think that Taylor's doing this, but there, there's a way of imagining this where it's like, this is where the social works the way it's supposed to. And, you know, people learn how to play their characters correctly. And th- that is probably the final outcome, but that can look like nice encouragement to some people, and that can look like extreme harassment to others. The ultimate effect is it creates the quote-unquote good EverQuest player, but the way that that happens and the, the number of people who are driven out by that is variable. Um, I can also say I was not there during the time that T.L. Taylor was playing EverQuest, and maybe that was just not a problem, or is not as big of a problem as it obviously is in games that have millions of people. Because uh, at its peak, EverQuest only had 420,000 users, mm-hmm. which is huge, but is tiny compared to, say, World of Warcraft at its peak. Mm-hmm. It could be that at a level of 400, you know, Fewer than half a million really invested players who would be playing EverQuest, it could be that that is just a nicer and more encouraging gameplay community because you've had to jump through a lot of hoops to get in this game. You know, we've talked about that before with the Celia Pierce book that, you know, we have to keep in mind the the self-selection that's going on when you're playing a game like Uru. And I think we need to think about that with EverQuest as well. Mm -hmm. 
And I think uh, one other sort of piece there that gets at uh, maybe why the the affects talked about here aren't as extreme. One is that, you know, maybe the, the play experience is different, but the other one, and I think this is a really interesting uh, historical note that I think you can untangle from this book, is that Taylor is responding to a line that I think is maybe both academic and popular, meaning like I think academics are writing about this, but it also seems to be like something that is happening in the discourse uh, of the players themselves in the game, uh, which is like, what is a troll? Right. Who is a griefer? Mm -hmm. What is griefing? And there's a real kind of tendency uh, and generally speaking to pathologize this to be like there is a type of person, a type of player who comes into EverQuest to troll and to uh, grief people. And, uh, you know, Taylor kind of true to form, who's always kind of pushing back on the the easy uh, stereotyping of, of a lot of like what what type what are what is a game player um, is saying, like one, one of the things she says is like, no, like everyone does this in some way or another. Like there are people she says, you know, there are people that she's seen in the game who are perfectly nice. Uh, but like if they see someone who they think is being particularly annoying, they'll train a monster on them. Uh, mm-hmm. as kind of uh, what you said, a disciplining mechanism. And so she's saying, you know, the, the what we call trolling and griefing is socially produced by its context, right? Like uh, the it's a behavior that anyone could kind of participate in. And we like to kind of say that like, oh, there's just a certain type of player who just does this. And that, that is also true, right? You said that there are troll guilds and there absolutely are. Uh, but it is kind of this thing that uh, builds off of a functionality in the game that is available to everyone. Uh, and so I think that's really interesting here. And she wants to say, you know, like uh, trolling and griefing are contextual. Like it, it's, a, you know, your your friend, for instance, in the game uh, might train a low level mob on you uh, as kind of like a little joke. Right. It's, you know, you understand you both understand that there's nothing by it, but then it becomes very different if it's a higher level mob and it's being trained on a low level character and so on and so forth. So. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a, another really interesting point of this chapter. Yeah, that that as you're saying, it's socially determined, and also uh, the the same action can get read contextually in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it 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 is not the same thing is not the same thing for all people. Um, it can also be recreational. Right. Like, like, that's a thing that I think comes up is that like, they're like, you already said people like to narrativize like EverQuest and like people like to narrativize the trains of monsters, right? Like, oh, what's the longest train you've ever ended up on? Or, uh, you know, what's sort of like the the most chaotic train encounter that ever happened that you've seen? Uh, It becomes Mm -hmm. that kind of thing as well. Do you want to explain what the train is? Okay. Um, well, a train is a bunch of cars that run on a track and they transport cargo from one place to another. Uh, but no, mm-hmm. in, in EverQuest, trains are trains of monsters. So we've already mentioned that uh, monsters don't, like, the mobs don't lose notice of you unless you leave an entire zone, which means that in EverQuest, uh, you can go 
a, a pretty far way, and that thing is just going to follow you. And also, every other thing that you aggro is also going to follow you. So uh, eventually, you have an. Um, there's a great image that is in this book that actually I posted to the Range Touch uh, Twitter account, uh, which is a train of skeletal conscripts. So it's just a bunch of walking skeletons, like, and there's a huge one like closest to the foreground, and they it's like a you know a little conga line that stretches off into infinity, and they all have the, the label over their head, skeletal conscript. Uh, so this is a thing that is happening in the game uh, constantly with enough frequency that uh, people like it, as I said, it becomes a kind of central part of like EverQuest anecdote of EverQuest lore. And sometimes this is because a low level player is, you know, running across a zone and they're building a train. And sometimes it's a higher level character who's gone out into a higher level area. And that means that there are higher level monsters chasing them. Uh, they've gotten in kind of over their head. And now suddenly they're bringing in high level monsters into other areas where players aren't as well equipped. So then you get kind of this whole social uh, formation around it of like, how do you warn people about trains, either because you see one coming or because you're leading one? Uh, how do you, uh, you know, sort of basically mobilize in order to make sure that the train doesn't come in and like murder all of the players in town? <laughs> yeah, because everyone who at the at the front of the zone, right, because you're like going into whatever this region and every a large number of people can be just hanging out there. You know, they're just like chilling out. They're, they're like resting. They're chatting with their friends or whatever. And they're just standing there. And then when you leave the zone, all those monsters just go to the next person. You know, they, they don't go back home. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you could be killing a bunch of people who are literally minding their own business. Um, and so, yeah, as you're saying, there's this whole social system that appears on it. And what's really great is you, a couple days ago or maybe yesterday, you, you, um, uh, posted this image that's of like a million of these skeletal conscripts running around and people in the chat or not in the chat, but people in the comments. Uh, so one person said, I don't want to use anyone's, you know, Twitter name, but, uh, uh, one person says, I remember making a train hotkey. Lol. Got to warn other people in the zone. <laughs> and then someone else responded to that and said, I made a train hotkey. Then while mindlessly grinding, I accidentally switched hotbars without noticing and spammed out a character with train to zone about 25 times. <laughs> My friend whispered me directly asking if I was okay. Thus, I finally noticed everyone in chat panicking and asking which zone. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so that, you know, that's part of the social of warning other people that like, uh oh, I have accidentally weaponized the game system here mm -hmm. <laughs> and everyone needs to be aware of it. And so it's highly social. Um, that doesn't exist in World of Warcraft, you know, and I don't think it existed even at the beginning, unless you have done something to s get stacks of aggro on you in some way, an enemy is not going to train over to you. Maybe maybe it will if you do certain stuff, but I think for the most part that has been, um, you know, moved out of the game I entirely. And so, you know, as far as I know, this experience is not really something you can have anymore. But yeah, 100% as you're saying, you know. It's, it's, and it's a thing that generates a practice around it. And that's what Taylor's trying to get through this whole book, right? You know, they're, the game presents you with structures, and then people enter into that. And then those people have to develop practices, social practices, that negotiate that system together. And, you know, so it creates this world of like, okay, I need to make a hotkey to let people know that I'm about to, you know, destroy them with a bunch of, <laughs> of NPC mobs. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, and so I mean that's that's really like that's the thrust of this chapter. But there's more that gets talked about here, uh, and it's kind of you know different versions of practice that emerge. So we get kind of the emergence of guilds, and then kind of the ways that guilds tend to accrete uh, what you know Taylor calls symbolic power. So you know like once guilds start emerging, guilds get reputations. There are good guilds, there are bad guilds. There are guilds that are really good at uh, you know uh, high level bosses or whatever, and guilds that are good for other things. All of these things that uh, just kind of, again, bubble up from people interacting within these systems that the systems themselves are not in any way uh, explicitly mandating or or designing. Uh, and then she also talks about uh, things about, you know, people start signifying affiliations. Uh, one of the other really interesting things that shows up here is like uh, families who play EverQuest together. And uh, like, is this the chapter I think where she interviews the kid who uh, is talking about how um, he basically like chastised his uncle by like withholding good items from him or something? Yes, this is on uh, 50, pages fifty two and fifty three. Have two of my favorite things in in the. Um in the whole book on them. But yeah, absolutely. This kid is like, I don't know, I don't know if he's a kid or not, but uh, you know, this this person is like uh <laughs> is like, yeah, my uncle was uh, making fun of me, so I cut off his income in the game. Yes. <laughs> Cuz he was a more experienced player than his uncle. Uh and yes. and Taylor points out, you know, this is a really fascinating thing because, you know, it's a we have a family structure that exists offline and uh the uncle is you know the, the more authoritative uh sort of traditionally in terms of how family structures work but here we enter into the game and we have this guy or kid or whoever who can turn the tables and be like sorry uncle like you you made fun of me you mocked me and now i'm not going to help you with everquest <laughs> yeah yeah and and it's like a huge number of people. It's like 10 people in their family. Yes. Um, There's also uh, here, uh, I mean, so related to family, we talk about uh, how at level 20, you can, your character can get a surname and people use these surnames to signify affiliations with each other. And sometimes this can just be straight up. Like we are family and we all have the same family surname, but then there's also this really fascinating uh, story that uh, Taylor tells about, uh, a married couple who play the game, but one of them has a different surname because she is like in game married to another person. Uh, or I don't think it's necessarily like in game married, but like it's a, you know, it's a like close friendship and they signify that friendship through the shared surname or close relationship in some way signified through the surname. Uh, and so we get the the use of all of these affordances of the game to signify but also build kind of a non-traditional let us say like social structures uh just because you know like what the heck is that like that's it, it, mm -hmm. in some like i was going to say you don't do that in real life but actually in some ways it's it's very similar to kind of like i don't know a, a pre-modern ethos of like no i am now a part of like such and such right like uh, I've been mm -hmm. fostered by like this royal family. And so now I'm going to try to adopt their name or something. Uh, so it, it, it fluidizes uh, those kinds of relationships in, in an interesting way. Yeah. And it also, you know, kind of evokes um, things like things that, that have always been around, but certainly have more of a presence now and certainly have more of a, a lexicon associated with them, like chosen family. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that that's the same vibe going on here, that there are different forms of social connection. You know, the language of chosen family is quite literally saying that we have uh, m uh, multiple kinds of 
uh, family structures that exist in the world, and we can make choices about how we want to lean on those or how how strong we want to make those bonds. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what T.L. Taylor is saying, you know, that in the game, that's that is an emergent thing that's happening constantly in EverQuest is that people are making decisions about how to hierarchize the strength of their social bonds um, and how much they want to um, um, make how much they want to make some of those primary and how much they want to make some of those secondary. Um, so, so, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to see these things developing in parallel and to think, well, what, what kind of historically is changing in the early two thousands that, uh, makes something like chosen family such so much stronger as a concept or something that people are willing to, um, uh, embrace socially than the 30 years beforehand, mm-hmm. right. Where in the 1980s, the, the traditional family was, uh, overwhelmingly dominant in fact had had come come back from behind in some ways mm-hmm. um uh but the the other thing i really like here i just want to say it really quickly is on 53 it's an excerpt from james gorman's uh new york times piece called the family that slays demons together <laughs> <laughs> um and it's talking about playing uh diablo 2 with his son and so you know this is just someone in the early 2000s who's trying to work through this weird thing of like hey um the our family relationship changes when my son is a higher level than me yes. in a video game. But this is the quote that, that Taylor pulls out that I really love. Um, so he writes in one of their in-game shopping excursions, quote, this one I'll buy for you, uh, his son said, pointing out the plated belt of thorns, which I now wear. But if you go for the more expensive one, you'll have to pay yourself. <laughs> I could hear my own voice in the aisles of Toys R Us urging moderation in the purchase of Beast Wars Transformers. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's it's amazing to me. You know, I, I do not have children and have no plans to. So uh, I, I, I hope to never have this experience. But there is so something so delightful to me uh, when uh, the things that are reaped are sown. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, that really is the, just the epitome of, uh, you know, me reaping, me sowing (laughs) (laughs) as far as Diablo 2. Maybe we can whip that up. Maybe we can whip up some sort of elaborate meme version of, of this, uh, (laughs) section, but, but that's kind of what's going on in this chapter is just trying to lay this out. Like what the hell's going on with the, with the social underneath the structure that is, or, or, uh, negotiating the structure that is, EverQuest. And I think the rest of the book, you know, Taylor doesn't really lay this out as, as um, linearly as I'm about to, but the rest of the book is basically how does the social get navigated in some different arenas? Yeah. You know, each other, each chapter is kind of a different spot that the social within EverQuest is doing something weird or interesting um, where human beings are negotiating, um, you know, the systems that the game offers them. Yeah, and that's uh, you know, the there is a couple of other stuff. Uh, there are a couple of other things that get talked about um in the chapter that are interesting, but we won't go into too much detail. One of the things that's going to sort of come up later is, uh, she talks about what I've already mentioned, which is like the, this weird teleportation economy that that builds up, mm-hmm. and then what happens when the EverQuest devs put things into the game to facilitate that or to take uh, that function essentially away from 
individual players to make it kind of like its own game mechanic. And then uh, how does that kind of change the players who were depending on that? But then also when that game mechanic proves to be insufficient in the face of like additional expansions or what have you, uh, how does it get improved through a later mechanic? And then she mentions, you know, like going through the old, like the desolate wizard spires, which were the the tele the, the sort of old teleportation mechanic uh, and just no one's there anymore. Right. Uh, and she compares it to kind of like uh, the the way that like big box stores, uh, you know, kill Main Street or what have you. She's not doing it in that critical way. She's saying, you know, it may seem like it's this sort of thing, but also like this is different because it's a game. Uh, and so that's going to come back later, this kind of like way that the game itself is going to respond to the actions of players. But that's near the end because the next chapter is chapter three, Beyond Fun, Instrumental Play and Power Gamers. And this builds off of something I've already mentioned, uh, which is Taylor's kind of move to, to depathologize uh, certain types of like gamer stereotypes or gamer identities. In this case, the, in, in this case, the power gamer, which is uh, in this time, at least right. If the power gamer is like, oh, I'm not a, you hear the term power gamer and you say, oh, I'm not a power gamer because power gamers aren't fun. They don't play to the spirit of the game. Uh, they're kind of taking it too seriously. Uh, the, the specific sort of formulation that Taylor has here on page 71 is that power gamers are seen as too focused, too intent, too goal-oriented. Uh, on the next page, uh, though, however, she, she sort of interviews people who talk about like they, they identify as like yeah i'm a power gamer she says power gamers quote consider their play style quite reasonable rational and pleasurable so what do we do with this that we have uh the the stereotype of the power gamer as someone who is kind of like ruining the fun so to speak but then you have the people who are actually the power gamers who are like what are you talking about i'm having a hell of a lot of fun mm-hmm yeah, that and and that's the interesting thing that I think this might have gone away. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this? Do you get a sense that this this um kind of distinction between the power gamer and just the regular gamer still exists? I well, I mean, I don't play MMOs um in this particular way, well, so it, I'm not. I'm not. I can't speak for certain, but I will say like I feel like people talk about power gamers less and if a if the term power gamer comes up it feels less uh negatively charged it does feel sort of like power gamer is just i don't know they're power gamers what are you going to do about them yeah and 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 that's the part of it too when i was reading this i was thinking i you know i'm very familiar with the word power gamer and that's certainly how it was used for a very long time but i you know we don't really use that word as much anymore you know i i think the way that we that that gets talked about now would be the language of like a hardcore raider, mm -hmm. or it might just be called like a raiding guild member. Um, you know, it, it, I, I don't know really how to account for it um, in a general sense. It seems like many of the games that kind of exist in the MMO space have so easily figured out the kind of upgrade path logic. You know, you're always getting more powerful and everyone's always looking for better gear. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's a big part. People in the Range Touch Discord are regularly talking about in Destiny, you know, like the things they're doing in order to get the the either aesthetically or uh, numerically better gear. Um and it 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 seems like this it seems like the motivations of the power gamer have really been kind of, of uh, diffused into the general play experience for many people. Um, 
I, yeah, I don't know. It, you know, and I think too, maybe a lot of this did change around Destiny. Weirdly enough, I, I'm thinking about when they added raids to that first game, and it became the kind of thing where you would need to find other people to do do it with. But it it didn't get talked about as a thing that's like impossible that only the weirdos are doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became the kind of it, or it seemed to me it became the kind of thing where it was like this is really cool, and if you have the time and patience for it, it is worth giving a shot. Um, and it's available to you after people kind of figure out how it works. You can do it. You know, it's not outside of your thing and you're not going to have to spend 200 hours doing it. Um, so I, I don't know. It kind of feels like some of these things have changed again. I'm not like in a raiding guild of any sort. Um, I have a really good friend who still plays world of Warcraft very regularly and up until recently was doing mastery dungeons there. And that very much was a, you know, by appointment gaming, you know, you got to show up and you got to show up on Tuesday nights or whatever. And that's when you do it. But it didn't seem the, seem the kind of thing of like he needed to spend all of his waking life in order to play it. It was more like you have to show up and play with the same group regularly more than you have to gear up over the course of like a year. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. It just feels like to me, people, people let us know on Twitter, twitter.com slash range touch. Um, uh, you know, let us know in the responses or in the tweet about this episode, where you think this is at, you know, is, is power gaming a like different kind of thing now? Um, you know, that, which is my vibe, or is it still really stratified and there are people who do it and there are people who have no interest in it. And it's kind of an aberration in the game. I'm not close enough. Like you are, Michael, I'm not close enough to these genres to really make the call in 2021, but um, but it does certainly, I think you're right in what you were just saying of no matter where it exists, it certainly seems less pathologized now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, like the, the the thing that I can think of where I hear this, something close to this the most is like Soulsborne discourse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And and that's even in and of itself a completely different beast, not only because it's not really an MMO, even though, you know, it is networked and everything, but because mm-hmm. like. In some ways, like, you know, Dark Souls is built to facilitate this kind of crunchy, uh, informatic way of play uh, to the degree that you can be like a sort of like Dark Souls power lore master. (laughs) You don't have to just be like a power gamer. Like you can do this with the lore of the game, with the backstory. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 a it seems different in that way. And definitely in like the Dark Souls or the Soulsborne thing, people will talk about it as like hardcore versus casual rather than uh, power gamer Mm -hmm. versus casual. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's it, too, uh, is that uh, the entire world of games became this, Uh (laughs) you know, like now every single game and game genre has its uh, distinction between power gamers and just regular ass gamers. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so so we don't have to it doesn't have to be pathologized specifically within MMOs anymore, because that is the way that that games operate now. And uh, game companies have leaned into it. You know, they've leaned into uh, this kind of relationship with the game, uh, an overcommitment to the game. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the, those people are uh, retweeted by official accounts now. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who give up huge portions of their life to the game. Whereas for EverQuest, that was looked at as a kind of aberration, both from the developer side and the player community side. That is your biggest fans um, at this point. And maybe maybe that is a way that games culture has changed, too. Yeah. And I mean, the it's it is interesting because, as Taylor points out here, you know, power gamers are uh, they're generating knowledge. 
They they have, you know, yes. fan sites. They are making tables, uh, you know, loot tables. They're running the numbers on like optimal builds and things like that, uh, which are not just going to be consulted by power gamers. They are going to be consulted, you know, by regular gamers who want to know how to, you know, do this, that or the other. Uh, and mm-hmm. the it is interesting, as you just said, that, um, you know, one of the things we get to by the end of this book is precisely how uh the everquest developers don't really understand what to do with their own very dedicated player base in some instances mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh but let's see what else do we have to say about power gamers well uh we get to talk about two boxing when you run yeah. when you play two games of everquest simultaneously on two computers <laughs> Yep, in order to, you know, you can have someone healing you and you can be, um, you know, being your warrior or whatever. Um, yeah, we get these kind of like, I would say, gender and class relationships going on here. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or uh, you know, these kind of markers and qualifiers because Taylor is saying, okay, well, what's going on with the fact that so many of these people are uh, at least presenting as men on the internet? Mm-hmm. You know, this is on page um, 73. And uh, she basically says, you know, that her her hunch here, because she doesn't have she, she's she's very uh, cautious about making a broad statement, which I think is really good. Mm-hmm. But her her hunch is that uh, rating in or in being a power gamer in a broad sense, you know, leveling a bunch of characters, doing uh, high high end content, all that kind of stuff um, in EverQuest requires a huge amount of spare time. And so she kind of like you know, hinges back on, well, in American society in particular, who has more time than who else? And uh, you know, long history of gendered labor and gendered labor constraints and time constraints uh, in the world. And so she says, um, this is on 73. Um, uh, hold on. Uh, um, I'll just read the beginning of the paragraph. One of the issues that sometimes arises with an examination of this style of play is whether or not women can and do occupy the position of power gamer. Is there anything inherently gender biased about the approach? My answer is no, but with two caveats. I have certainly talked to several women who fit the bill of a power gamer and heard from others about women in their own guilds they would identify as such. The caveats arise not around internal psychological orientations to the play style, i.e. women are not competitive enough, but structural considerations. There is debate, for example, about how much time is required to be a power gamer. Some feel that power gaming has more to do with how time is used than the amount of time devoted to the game. Others, however, suggest that many women, because of domestic or work pressures, simply do not have the required amount of leisure time needed to fully embody the play style. My sense is that time definitely plays some role, especially at the high-end game where participation in raiding guilds, a natural home for the power gamer, comes with significant responsibility. The fact that many women still perform an enormous juggling act with domestic labor, social family responsibilities, work outside the home, and their leisure time certainly plays a part in their ability to inhabit the power gamer playstyle. Um, and and then talks about um, their stereotypes that prevent women from having dedicated playtime. That's kind of the end of the, the section there. But but what is so interesting to me about this, and this comes up again later in the book. Actually, we'll just talk about it in the next chapter. But um, you know, Taylor is very unwilling to give into a kind of psychological normativity that says women play games and are into games for X, and men are into games for Y. Mm-hmm. Um, across this book, she is unwilling to give any ground there, and I think that's a very very good move. But we can talk about that during the next chapter. Is there anything else that kind of sticks out to you uh, here? Um, 
I'm just what I just want to say that on page 91, she briefly brings up the concept of flow and then mentions that it uh, tends to ignore issues of social embeddedness, which, yes, mm -hmm. it does. Good. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I'm there I'm glad I'm glad to see that uh, that little pushback against flow, because especially there's a bit early on um, a, a couple of pages uh, before that, really. Uh, yes, uh, this is on page 76. Power gamers seem willing to endure much more than many other players and are particularly adept at breaking down the game, dividing the challenges into discrete parts and then working on each area like a puzzle to meet their personal goals, which they are constantly revising and developing as they progress. Uh, and I wrote in my notes like this is one of the ways uh, that Chixamahai explains the flow process in, in that book uh mm -hmm. it's it's you know sort of divided against itself variously uh but this is kind of one of the ways that he talks about it there uh where he's like you know if you're in a bad factory job all you have to do is like treat it as a puzzle and then divide the pieces out and then like constantly work towards your goal and revise your approach as you get closer to the goal and just all this stuff um mm -hmm. And what I think is great about pointing out that flow ignores kind of social embeddedness is that uh, it's there's a very different experience from like being on a factory line versus playing EverQuest. Uh, and there is yeah. there's a move here that she makes toward uh, because because so many people say power gamers like take the fun out of things. Uh, she's kind of trying to get out of the the fun language to say that, you know, like you know, power gamers tend to think of things in terms of like uh, hard work and enjoyment. Right. Fun is in some way inadequate to what it is they feel like they're doing. And maybe that has bearing on people who aren't power gamers as well. And in fact, on on what we mean when we think about enjoying playing a game. Mm -hmm. yeah the the kind of term that gets used here and it comes up throughout the rest of the book is instrumentality mm -hmm. um you know that i mean it's in the chapter right chapter instrumental play in power gamers you know this idea that um that when uh, one way of playing is sitting down and looking basically at all the component pieces and then thinking how do we optimally operate this machine um, as opposed to thinking about it as kind of a role-playing game, for example, of like sitting and just chatting, or as opposed to thinking of it as a crafting game that you just want to do, or as an exploration game, something like that. That uh, instrumental play sees the the operations for what they are. If we think back to the Buckles episode, you know, it's the one player that played adventure and thought, this is a game space with no moral dimension whatsoever, mm -hmm. um, and I will play it optimally and try to figure out how things work. Um, that's instrumental play. Mm -hmm. Chapter four is called Where the Women Are, uh, and it, as you've already sort of gestured to, picks up on some questions hanging over from the, the Power Gamer chapter, uh, which is, uh, you know, the issue of gender in, and gender representation in these games. And specifically, again, uh, Taylor always kind of like taking the popular stereotype and then just being like, so, OK, what do we do to trouble this? And also kind of, why are we so quick to believe this? This is actually something I love about this book. Um, you know, gamers are stereotypically men, uh, but she talks about even in back in that first chapter, you know, gamers are stereotypically men or young boys who are like totally asocial. And then this book opens with her in a hotel conference room surrounded by all sorts of people who are doing all sorts of weird things like handing out roses and stealing uh, banners and like having chats and getting drinks. And 
and uh, taunting each other. Taunting each other, yeah. Uh, and this is like there are men and there are women there. And so she, you know, one of the one of the things that Taylor uh, does constantly that I really love is like, okay, so we all think that like stereotypically uh, men are gamers. Then why in the hell am I constantly running into women in this game? Right? Like, you yeah. know, they're here. Like they're on the like they're not making it a secret. So like, why do we keep kind of saying that you know gamers are men? <laughs> Yeah, and we, and we uh, and, and you'll hear here, right, we are using the words men and women uh-huh. and not talking about any kind of gender presentation beyond that, and that's a, a, an artifact of the book. Uh, Taylor is not particularly interested in um, in talking about gender presentation or, uh, you know, gender identity beyond that. Based on what I know of Taylor's work, I don't think that that is, you know, a purposeful exclusion here. In 2006, if you're writing an academic book on these issues, unless your book is specifically on the topic of people who do not fit within those pretty direct binary categories, uh, it's probably not going to come up. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a, that's an artifact of the time, I think, more than than anything to do with uh, T.L. Taylor's personal political commitments. Um so yeah. I, I just wanted to mark that because one might hear all of this and think, well, what about everybody else? And uh, those people are absolutely in there. But Taylor is interested in these kind of two um, social markers. Mm-hmm. The other things that she kind of takes issue with here, not really takes issue, but sort of like wants to, to get under or question uh, are all of these sort of stereotypes about gendered play where it's like, well, women uh, old, like they when they play games, it's primarily for socialization and communication and that's what women want out of games is like ways to talk to each other and, uh, you know, just sort of like build communities and that sort of thing, like interpersonal skills. And sort of in addition to treating women as a monolith, um, one of the things that Taylor thinks is really insidious here is that it uh, flattens and trivializes the work of uh, like the actual work of online socialization and what it means to sustain uh, relationships online, which everyone is doing. Um, to one degree or another. So she, you know, wants to kind of, uh, you know, uh, unpack or, or sort of, uh, unthread some of these very tidy assumptions about different types of play and, and how those relate to, uh, various gender expressions. Uh, yeah, there, there's a move, and this is still common. You can see this on Twitter all the time of, and of people who have their heart in the right place of saying things you know, of, of saying things like we need to um, radically change the ways of interacting with the world in games because that would open it up to larger people, um, you know, a larger group of people. And then those people step unintentionally entirely, but but nevertheless do step into an essentialization. You know, um, I, I see quite often still, and I've seen for 15 years, people saying things like, you know, as long as I've been reading criticism and, and game design work on the Internet, uh, people saying things to the effect of, um, you know, uh, women like XYZ in games. And so games should change to allow XYZ to be in them because that will mean women players. Um, and that that's an essentializing, you know, uh, move to say that women are a set of normative categories, which is not to say that women are not shoved into those disciplinary kind of uh, um, uh, maneuvers there. If you want to read all about the, uh, you know, much more in-depth thing that I'm talking about right now, you can read Ready Player Two or listen to our episode on Shira Chess's Ready Player Two. Um, and what what Taylor is very careful about saying here is that women are not anything. You know, women there is no, uh, 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 you know, essentializing core characteristic of womanness 
that that your game can then do that will bring women into it inherently because as you just said women are socialized in uh in the moment of socialization in the way that every single person on the, on the planet is you learn how to be a particular type of person in a particular type of social situation and so uh you know she she's trying to say um rather than say where are the women and uh, and then say because uh, you know uh, certain gameplay types are afforded women are here or not is that it's also beneficial maybe to look and see uh, women are here already and so what are they doing mm-hmm. um, and how are they interacting with this space and not begin from first principles of essentialization but to begin from a place of how are women existing in the world right and one of the things she finds is that like surprise surprise there are women playing everquest whose primary goal is to be really good at playing everquest <laughs> like yeah. then she talks there's the uh, wonderful thing where she's talking about like one of the fan forums and how people uh use their signatures to display their you know their names and their guild affiliations and their servers and all that but also their kind of accomplishments and there's the one of um it's like a, a a bard or something who has just like slain a dragon or something and very sort of like, you know, uh, uh, it's not, you know, uh, hardcore presented. It's like presented in fun, but it's precisely like, you know, like I'm a woman and I've killed a dragon kind of thing. Uh, uh, you know, like I am good at EverQuest. Like what I like here is fighting these monsters and uh, defeating them. Mystic Purr Fate Weaver. Yes. Is that character's name. Yes. Uh, there's also the other one that, so uh, yeah, it's an analysis of forum signatures, which I wish I, maybe someone has done that. I wonder if there's like a big rhetorical piece. that's like, here's how to think forum signatures because, uh, something I missed in my life. I would love to read more about that. But the other one that's here too is from Alyssum Black Soul with an E on it. That's kind of like a, like a sexy elf lady, like laying down and she's been like defeated by some cats. There are these little kittens playing all over mm-hmm. her. Um, and then it has like a super high level sword. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, like, oh, this, this is her sword. She's put it down to like, you know, roll around on the ground with these cats, right? There's this kind of playfulness with um, the, the playfulness with the game situation, I guess, but also not uh, giving any ground, you know, saying, yes, I've accomplished important things in the game, but that is not the entirety of my like game playing being, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we have a sort of discussion of character designs here and uh, sort of the stickiness around that where you know people are playing the game and they're like, hey, all of the uh, women of these races are pretty sexualized. And then the the response to that is like, well, a woman designed them. That's from the developers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, obviously that does introduce like a complicating factor, but it's presented as like, well, now you can't you can't say anything about this uh, because, you know, it was a woman designer. Um, but really what it gets down to and the, and the woman designer sort of talks about this is that she uh, says, you know, it was kind of like, well, it was a fantasy. Right. So I was thinking like, well, what is fantasy? And uh, so I, you know, designed the characters according to that. And then the thing that Taylor ends up sort of highlighting is that, you know, the, the, the fundamental issue here is that uh, fantasy itself as a genre has a kind of gender politics baked into it that gets reproduced. Um, and so, mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily a surprise probably to anyone listening to uh, this podcast. But remember, this is like this is like the early 2000s uh, and this is all happening on kind of like the fan forums. So uh, we have kind of that going on. And of course, we have the uh, 
designer, uh, what is it, his name, Brad McQuaid, um, talking about how, you know, he tries to basically have uh, gender and like colorblind design, uh, like, you know, not trying to, to sort of like incorporate or, or like uh, pull that uh, the issues of race and gender into the game design in any way. Uh, which Taylor says is, you know, I'm sure this is well intentioned, but the problem is uh, it, it does not do anything to counteract like what's going on in the marketing department and the fact that we've got a sexy elf lady in a chainmail bikini on the box art, for instance, or, you know, the pre-existing cultural systems that, as Taylor has already very well established, people are bringing into the game with them. Uh, and so she, you know, interviews uh, uh, several women players who talk about you know how they kind of you know unfortunately have to the, the word that taylor uses is bracket they kind of have to bracket their feelings about their avatar in order to enjoy the game they have to uh, sort of compartmentalize that in order to engage with the game at all mm -hmm. yeah and she she kind of goes through a uh <laughs> well she's pretty critical uh which is I, I, critical in a useful way, but it's really interesting how this shows up anytime we're reading something around this period, but like that these questions almost universally got filtered through Laura Croft mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and Taylor is like, look is more complicated than is Laura Croft a good or bad representation. Mm -hmm. Like we have to talk about the social process behind this and, but uses that. So I, that, that criticism of where game studies was at at that point is very, very interesting. But um, she kind of moves it beyond that and looks at a specific, I think, blog post or maybe like a forums review. I don't know where this was posted, but um, uh, this EQ EverQuest player called Cordama, who was just talking about like, what are the things, exactly like you're saying, what are the things that I have to try to not think about in order to enjoy this game? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it says, this is a quote from it, but, um, or this is the full quote, the block quote that Taylor puts in the book. Um, so what do women want for role-playing games? I cannot speak for all women, but I can for myself. The answer lies in simple choice. I simply want the ability to play a woman, and I want to be able to decide that she, what she looks like as much as possible. I want my characters to be beautiful, but not necessarily brazen. I certainly don't want to be forced to display even virtual buttocks to the world, virtual buttocks to the world, to the howls of laughter from my fellow players. And so the, you know, the... Taylor is using this to point out that like the demand here or, or the ask here, I don't even know if it's a demand. The ask here is not for like radical revision of the fantasy universe, mm -hmm. but literally just for uh, a, a reasonable um, real world accessibility of customization. Mm -hmm. Like if, if one could present oneself in the real world this way, then maybe one should be able to do that in the digital world. And it's really interesting to me how these, you know, and we don't really have time and this is not the place to, to get into this, but it's interesting to me how these demands have or, or requests or uh, critiques have shifted over the years. Um, because, you know, I, I think about in, in games where aesthetics matter a whole lot, um, how it's turned into questions of skins. Mm. So, you know, buying full outfits that change the, that, that are used on the same basic character model, but change the way it looks. Right. So like, uh, you know, I can make, um, Oh gosh, you know, Reinhardt in Overwatch, he can look like a medieval knight sometimes. And you can look like, um, some other kind of guy sometimes, uh, you can tell how much I play Overwatch mm -hmm. or, uh, in destiny, right. It's my fairly stock character model 
getting the, its kind of exterior clothing changed, mm-hmm. um, but but not really customization of like what parts of the body are exposed or not. Um, it seems like a lot of these games have moved um, have moved in different ways to accommodate for that, and in some ways have become much more constraining in that way. Um, there's not there's a whole lot of like different visual variability, but not a whole lot of like clothing shape variability in Destiny, for example, mm-hmm. um, or in any of the MOBAs. Um, and you know, for maybe for gameplay reasons there. Although I think you know, World of Warcraft is still regularly critiqued for many many of these things. So it's interesting to see how this argument has moved and shaped and and kind of shifted from in EverQuest, where this is, as you're saying, you know, this is not the first time this argument has showed up, but this is a major time this argument is showing up mm-hmm. because you know, half a million people are playing it and they're talking to each other constantly in a lot of different ways. And they are trying to articulate these claims um, in big, broad ways to each other and to the devs. And so, you know, this is an important historical marker for this question of what does representation do in a game? And and how do people have to interact with the representations that are given to them structurally by the game? And sort of on that same note, a a section of this chapter that I think is really cool is when she talks about race in these terms. Um, You know, it's not the whole chapter, but like... You know, it's 2006 uh, and Taylor is like explicitly saying, hey, these things are linked, right? It's not actually just uh, an issue of gender representation like races at play here, too. Uh, and there's this whole thing about uh, the erudites, uh, which is a uh, EverQuest race that gets added with with one of the expansions, uh, which th- this was fascinating to me just first of all, because they're. Uh, they're called erudites <laughs> it's like the yeah. smart people yeah. Yeah. um and, yeah and they are uh like their whole thing is they have additional intelligence points which uh uh taylor reads as yeah on 115 the, the quote here is that or bottom of 114 115 uh, while the game itself seeks to frame and contain how we might understand the erudites, the seeming intentionality of the designers to work against type by, quote, inverting a number of pernicious racist stereotypes, end quote, should not be overlooked and reflects the way in-game choices, be they design or play ones, always are in dialogue without game considerations, whether consciously or not. On the one hand, this design intervention is certainly a welcome refusal to go down the familiar path in which black game characters are positioned, as designer Ernest Adams notes, either as rappers or athletes. Um, there's a, and then like this is like a massive quote line of a bunch of people who talk about that. But alternatively, this kind of move can slip easily into the formulation in which the other is the exceptional, mm-hmm. the model minority, or the noble. Homi Baba suggests that the chain of stereotypical signification is curiously mixed and split, polymorphous and perverse, an articulation of multiple belief which can simultaneously traffic in, for example, the image of the savage and the dignified, the primitive and the accomplished manipulator. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what what, um, what Taylor is saying here and demonstrating it and kind of um, involving Homie Baba here to talk about here is that while this seems to be, the, the design of the erudite seems to be this kind of generous liberal maneuver of, ha ha ha, the stereotype is one thing and we will produce the opposite of the stereotype, Homu Baba has already very, very well and many years earlier pointed out that this maneuver is part of otherization and racism mm-hmm. in a general sense, that it's either someone who is 
that the stereotype lives as either what you would expect, you know, um, that that it's the red guard example that you use, or that it's the miraculous opposite, mm-hmm. right? Ha ha ha! In fact, it is someone who is hyper intelligent. You 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 racist buffoon, and that in itself, that maneuver of the of playing against the stereotype itself is what enables the othering to keep happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, that's just as enabling as anything else. Um, so it's a really interesting kind of, of uh, set of the argument here, uh, or a couple pages of the argument here. It's really interesting to me because um, uh, we've talked, you know, regularly on the show across several books about how the the relationship between uh, the analysis of race and game studies is not particularly strong. You know, that has not been a core concern. The, the, the social system of race and racism has not been a core concern, I don't think, for game studies until very recently. I think that's a safe thing to say. I don't think that I'm, um, you know, uh, uh, making things up there. You know, there, there are certainly people who have been uh, on it for quite a long while and talking about it regularly. I think Shauna Gray, who, whose book mm-hmm. we've done here, one of whose book we've done here, but even people before that, like David Leonard, um, people who have, have really been focused in on it as a key part of their kind of game studies production. Um, as well as all the other books that we've done, particularly in the last year. But um, what's interesting to me here is that uh, Taylor is having to marshal a lot of people in the citational apparatus who are not in game studies at all Mm -hmm. in order to kind of give a backbone to this critique. And it ends up looking a little bit weird, right? Because, you know, even like Stuart Hall, 1997, Bell Hooks, 1996, get like summoned up here. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the Stuart Hall piece is... Um, uh, I had it p- pulled up here a second ago, uh, is just to, um, is from the 1997 book representation, cultural representations and signifying practices, which is like a big, broad theory book. Um, and, and I, I'm not saying this to critique, uh, Taylor, because I think this is what you have to do, but just to say that like, this is a place where someone is looking for a handhold, you know, to kind of build this apparatus and is having to go way outside of the analysis of games to try to like get that handhold and bring it in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's really interesting. It's an interesting kind of early artifact of trying to, to do racial analysis in games. Uh, is there anything else that's happening here in this, uh, in this chapter for you, Michael? Uh, no, I mean, I, I was going to remark, uh, make a similar remark to what you did, which is just like, it's, I was, like very surprised to see homie K Baba show up here. Uh, but not in, in the sense that like, I don't think homie K Baba should not be here, but it, it speaks to the fact that as you're saying, like you have to go so far outside of like what is happening in game studies to find something that's going to let you talk about what is going on with these characters. And in particular, a thing that doesn't come up, but there are uh, screenshots of the, uh, of the erudites and it is very clear that they are like totally just an orientalist fantasy like they have like you know uh uh like lots of silk scarves and things like that uh uh, sort of vaguely sort of uh evoking kind of like middle eastern or like north african cultures kinds of things uh so Hmm. again right uh just homie k baba is a good pool and i'm i'm i was i was just so sort of surprised pleasantly surprised to see this argument go here um because it is Mm -hmm. the sort of thing that i think falls out of a lot of early game studies well if you want to learn uh more about homie baba and game studies darshana and i have a piece coming out i think next year about it hooray about uh gandhi and civilization 
and uh, what's going on with all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's a little, just a little uh, teaser for something that'll, that'll show up like, you know, at, at academic publishing speed. <laughs> so uh, whenever you see that. Um, she, uh, I, one last thing I want to say here about this chapter, and then we can move on, is that there's a really cool little moment here at the very end where she just says very clearly that, um, she praises EverQuest for not encoding gender into play mechanics specifically, mm-hmm. which might sound a little bit odd to someone in 2021 because I think many of the games that had strong, you know, gender differences in their mechanics have gotten rid of that at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Dungeons and Dragons got rid of that and things like that. But um, that, that's that is notable here, mm-hmm. right? That EverQuest understands that. Um, that maybe player avatar, the way it looks, should perhaps not have much bearing on statistical capability um, because that encodes all kinds of essentialist ideas. And so um, there's this interesting thing that's happening here where um, uh, in terms of gender, that isn't happening, but obviously in terms of race, it Mm -hmm. is. And so there there are ways that EQ uh, bounces out of these systems or is responsive to systems of... I don't know, social structure in ways that it isn't. And, and that's pretty interesting that's happening here. Chapter five, whose game is this anyway? Is this a whose line reference? I, it, I, it must be either that or like it's a sincere question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't. I, it could be both. The classic double pun. Mm-hmm. Um uh yeah th- this is a chapter that is broadly about and i don't know how specific we need to get here because um this is a chapter that kind of lives on its specificity mm-hmm. it is about some really specific cases down through the years but basically is about the relationship between corporate ownership of intellectual property uh, and game systems and private ownership of it so what is going on in games between uh, the ownership that players take of it and the ownership that the corporations take of it? Um, is that a fair, do you think, uh, summary here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, like things like, uh, you know, selling eBay, selling your character on eBay, for example, to give something that I think still has probably currency. Uh, like mm-hmm. what is happening there because the the game or rather the developers or, or the company is going to come around and be like, wait a minute, you can't uh, sell that character because it's our game, right? And we have a, a you know, a, a use agreement and you agreed to it and all this stuff about account sharing, this, that, and the other. Uh, but one of the things that Taylor is kind of pointing out and I think I have this in a quote. Yes, uh, this is on page 133. Uh, it takes a player to create a character, and it takes the time of the player to develop that character. Through her labor, she imbues it with qualities, status, and accomplishments. Uh, so, you know, in short, players are active co-creators in terms of both meaning and value uh, for the things that exist in the game. So the developers can say, you know, we designed the game, but as Taylor has pointed out, like the players enter the game and they bring something with them that the designers did not and cannot add. Uh, and they create sort of new value in that way. And so the, the question becomes like, who has a right to this value that has been created and uh, how can that be negotiated? And 
Taylor uh, consistently throughout this chapter thinks like, I don't think this is going well. Like there are worrying signs that this is just going to uh, consistently fall on the side of the corporation. Uh, and this is where um, I think I, I alluded to this earlier. Uh, these, the, the thing that is truly kind of novel in, in some ways about this type of game for Taylor is that these are big corporate undertakings, uh, you know, uh, uh, EverQuest or World of Warcraft uh, cost much more to put together, to produce, and to keep running than something like a MUD or a Moo, which in theory can be run on, uh, you know, just some college students uh, server in their in their free time, something like that. So that's one of the big shifts between uh, mostly text based multiplayer games to these graphical ones is that it's a shift from kind of, uh, you know, homegrown or or individually run or small collectively run uh, spaces to big corporate spaces where you're going to run into issues like this, where uh, like corporate rights are going to smash into like individual rights yeah and and what's interesting about this chapter is that it feels like to me that most of these questions are solved um not not meaning that they're solved in the right way but meaning that they're they don't really exist as questions or, or like questions for the vast majority of players anymore um uh and maybe they weren't big questions for the the players at the time you know taylor repeatedly says that basically any time that players have the opportunity to, to participate in a talkback session they're they're almost never interested in these types of questions of like what do i own versus what do you own are these characters mine can i talk about the world that you that you know can i talk about the world that everquest takes place on but use my own character do i own that they're not interested in that. They're interested in like asking questions about numbers and expansions and things like that. So, you know, it could just be the the, the case that a, a um, way of engaging with the world or with these games has just kind of progressed and accelerated. But uh, but for example, right there there is you know well repeatedly in this chapter you know there are some big examples of where. Uh, the player's ownership of something and uh, the Sony Online Entertainment, the, the EverQuest publisher, uh, developer, I guess, where they own something. So one of those is external programs. Mm -hmm. You know, can you use an external program like these ones that like show a map? Or allow you to tab out of the game. That's wild to me. Yeah. <laughs> that you could not tab out of the game and you had to install a mod, like this external mod to allow you to tab out. But, uh, and like check a web browser because that was not intended behavior. And so, you know, there, there's this question for the community should that be allowed or not? Should I be able to do that or not? And there's real debate in the community about that. And there's debate between players and the corporation. Similarly, there's a debate that's happening around fan fiction. Should you be able to write fan fiction, even if it is morally repugnant fan fiction, should you be able to do that about the fictional world that exists, mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that EverQuest takes place in? Um, and because, and that kind of comes about because this player, um, uh, uh, no, well, I didn't write the player's name down for it's, some reason, but a player. It's like Mystery oh, or something. I'm not sure how you're supposed to pronounce yeah, it. It looks, it looks like a play on mystery. Yeah, Mystere, something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, you're right. Um, that uh, this person writes a, a, a fanfic that is kind of partially their own creation and partially involved 
uh, with the fiction that is EverQuest. And it, it involves a sexual assault and a bunch of other stuff because it's like, you know, it's a very traditional fantasy story, it seems. that has got like bad bads that do real bad mm-hmm. stuff. You're, you're George R.R. Martin. Go- exactly. And it, or you're, uh, what, Terry Goodkind, mm-hmm. you know. They're real bad and they do all the bad taboo stuff because they're bad. And then you got good goods who are like, not that, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it seems like very, you know, from from what I can read here, fairly uh, pedestrian in that regard. Um, but uh, because it has a sexual assault in it and it has a sexual assault that uh, is debatably in the community about a minor, it's very unclear, uh, at least in initially mm-hmm. um, because of that. There is this kind of explosion of concern about it. And in in a way that I think would not happen today, uh, Sony Online Entertainment uh, bans this person. Mm-hmm. Um, they ban this person from playing the game. And I don't know, I you know, I'm obviously I'm not deep enough in these communities, but it seems like for the most part, MMO companies just actively ignore that kind of thing at this point. Um, you know, they, they do not engage with that kind of thing. Uh, and they eventually end up reinstating this player and kind of clarifying what their, their goalposts are as far as like what players can do and what the corporation should do. But this seems to be a moment where, uh, of, of corporate decision-making that just is not the kind of thing that would happen today. I, I do, am I off base with that? Do you think, or is that, I, is that true? I think so. I mean, I had questions about this, uh, even in hearing it sort of described because it's like, man, this could not be the first messed up piece of EverQuest fan fiction ever posted online. Cause that's the other thing is it was posted mm-hmm. to like a fan site to like a fan forum. So I just yeah. had a, I had a lot of questions of like, why this particular one? Like how did, how did the firestorm build around this specific thing? Uh, because you're right. It, it does seem like, it opens up such a bizarre can of worms. Like once this has happened, are we going to be scouring the internet looking for messed up EverQuest fan fiction in order to ban people? And I don't know, what do you do if someone is writing EverQuest fan fiction, but also isn't playing the game? It's just mm-hmm. it, it like from a corporate perspective, I'm just like, what? Well, I mean, I think that's what happens. I think that that they very quickly got to where you are, which is like, oh, shit, this is hard. (laughs) Like, it's going to be extremely hard to, like, you know, like, send cease and desist for all of these things. And so they eventually back off of it and, you know, reinstate the person and and all that kind of stuff. And the uh, and I think it leaves an open question of like, well, you know, whatever you feel about it morally is like whatever. Right. But from from the perspective of like a company enforcing its intellectual property rights over someone based on whether they agree or do not agree with the, you know, the moral element of the thing. I I don't know. I don't know where that landed, but it feels like you can post anything you want about blizzard, (laughs) you know, properties at this point and people don't seem to be getting banned. Uh, Maybe you can, I I don't know, but um, it was reputation. That's the interesting thing. Like that was the argument that they were making is that they were protecting the reputation of their IP uh, yeah. And that's the thing yes. that uh, Taylor points out is that like, so like at what point, like, I, I don't know, like what about criticism of the game? For instance, is that something that is harming the reputation of your IP and is that bannable and, and so on and so forth? So yeah, it, it's a, it's a really weird kind of uh, space to, to work yourself into. Yeah. And and you can see like, again, like however you feel about it is, is, uh, you know, kind of, uh, 
kind of beside the point in some ways because the the questions here are like what it, what does the corporation own and what do they not own and and that's the way that everyone is articulating it it's not really articulated on the grounds of like the content of the story so much other than that's the kind of line of justification for it the the real thing is that what part of the world does the does this thing own and it could just be because the world is smaller at that point mm-hmm. right the internet's smaller the number of people who are playing uh, these games is smaller it, it it could be this is not said in the book but i you know one pathway to thinking about this is that it becomes kind of a meme in the community that people are talking about it regularly, or maybe this person is a known player. Mm-hmm. That could also be true, which would uh, you know introduce some of it to it. What was really interesting to me is that uh, one of the fan fiction site um, owners, one of the hosts of a fan fiction site for EverQuest, c- kind of t- takes the corporate side on it. Um, so this is uh, by Safka Fairheart, the host of Safka's Lore. Real early 2000s internet Mm -hmm. vibe. This is the quote. Um, They, EverQuest, will not pursue authors for breach of intellectual copyright, which is what we were concerned about, but they will be forced to consider their options should the boundaries of good taste be crossed by any given piece of EQ fiction. That we feel is fair enough. That is their right. They have to act to protect their brand image. And that's coming from a a fanfic site host. That is not a corporate like PR person saying that. And so Taylor does a really good job here of of pointing out the kind of uh, mixed feelings in the community Mm -hmm. about it too, right? Like maybe with this corporation we like that lets us do enough, you know, maybe we should throw some people to the wolves on this one um, because it will protect everyone else's ability to use the intellectual property. Um, And that's pretty interesting here too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's kind of just what the chapter's about. Uh, it, It is a really about sort of, opening up these problems and posing these questions. And as I said, uh, Taylor kind of thinking like, I, I don't feel good about necessarily where this is going in, in a broad sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Taylor is very wary of where it went. Um, and ultimately I think that the corporations just won on these things. They're, they're more permissive in this kind of realm of fan production, I think certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, external programs for the most part, if they are not kind of cleared through, um, the user interface, like the particular kind of, um, you know, API functions that a game has, they'll, they'll still get you banned. You know, trying to operate the software in a way that's not intended to be operated will get you banned. I think multiboxing is still frowned on and bannable in, in most of these games. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, they're really aggressive about policing, particularly images mm-hmm. of their intellectual property query really that that taylor is posing is like can we kind of imagine a new way to uh, rethink like collaborative production and ownership uh in the face of kind of this corporate interest um and i think that's still an open question yeah an open question tending toward no Mm -hmm. it's got to be behind the patreon wall (laughs) if you (laughs) if you do it uh you know security through obscurity as they say Chapter six, the future of persistent worlds and critical game studies. It's kind of a kind of a conclusion mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is uh, really just summarizing a lot of stuff that has come before and laying out kind of tendencies and trajectories that that uh, may uh, dominate the conversation going forward. So something that, for instance, Taylor is seeing in kind of the scholarship and she, she mentions uh, 
Salen and Zimmerman here. Uh, it, something that she's not a fan of in the scholarship is what seems to be a kind of attempt to, uh, this is her word from page 151, to reconstitute uh, kind of the boundaries of online and offline, which she uh, suggests is kind of analogous to the magic circle argument. So, you know, if we if we were wondering, T.L. Taylor seems to be a big magic circle skeptic, or at least in the sense that the magic circle is like a hardly defined boundary, not hardly defined. Uh, firmly defined, I should say, clearly defined boundary, uh, a hard limit through which things can or cannot pass, right? Taylor is saying that, no, really, it's it's about these things being ported into one another, things influencing each other, and we need to be paying attention to how the online and the offline are co-producing each other, rather than thinking about uh, one as being totally separate from the other, and especially one as a potential escape from the other, because when you think you've escaped the one, that's how it gets you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's still there. So... Uh, big ideas, I guess. Uh, this is these are actually just section titles because I think they they do a really good job in terms of like recapping these ideas uh, for sort of the summary sections. Uh, like, where is Taylor going to plant her flag? Players are producers, right? Players don't just like come into someone else's world and fiddle around with a bunch of stuff. Players come into a game world and they make things. They produce things that were not there before uh, when there weren't players. And they make things together that are not designed, that are not intended, that are not built into the game. Uh, play is also diverse and socially situated. So this is the issue of like the power gamer. Uh, there is no one way to play. Different people have different ideas about what play is, what it means and, and what you're supposed to be doing uh, with play. And that sort of thing is often going to be determined by a kind of social context, by gender and race and like class and how much time you have and so on and so forth. And then similarly, uh, rules are contextual and contested. So, you know, don't run a train into town uh, unless you're playing a silly goof on your friend and you're sure it's not going to hurt anyone. But also, uh, don't use this kind of outside program in order to know, like, the, the location and name of every mob in the realm kind of at a glance. Don't use that outside tool. Uh, except maybe, maybe we should. Maybe we should be having a conversation about what makes this game kind of uh, easier to play or, or what takes out maybe the most fiddly or frustrating bits of it. And uh, we change the rules such that this game becomes uh, more welcoming in some ways, or, you know, at least we remove certain parts of the, the, the frustrations of play and say like fast travel or what have you. Uh, so mm -hmm. a, a really good kind of summary of just how things are always in flux. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the conclusion here is you're, you're kind of laying out, right. It's, it's kind of like half, here's where the world can go and half like remember the assumptions that we need to have if we're doing additional game studies mm -hmm. in the future. And I think that, you know, if you're looking for a chapter, this chapter I think doesn't quite fit with the rest of the book or maybe should have been the introduction in some ways. Um, I understand why it's here and I don't think it's like a bad maneuver for it to be here, but it feels a little less related to EverQuest or like virtual worlds research specifically. And it's more kind of like, here, if you're going to carry a banner for what it means to do research with human beings in, in game spaces, here's what you have to keep in mind. Um, and so and so I say that to say, if you're looking for that kind of piece, this final chapter is awesome. You don't have to have read the rest of the book to kind of get that 
that good uh, stuff out of it. Um, you, you know, I, <laughs> what's really, really funny is finishing this book. And I don't know how you feel about this. Uh, but in finishing the book, I, th- I was like reading the whole book and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm on board. I'm mostly on board. I'm on board. I'm on board. And I got to this final chapter and I just thought, yeah, I think I'm more of a determinist than G.L. Taylor is. <laughs> like, And Henry Jenkins is. Henry Jenkins is, really shows up a lot here at the end. And I, you know, I think I've said kind of my relationship toward Jenkins and the way that Jenkins thinks about the world. But I just don't think human beings swerve as much as as uh, they do. Um, I, I, uh, maybe I'm maybe a broader structuralist. Maybe I'm just too influenced by post-structuralism, but, uh, I see a lot more ways that human beings are curtailed than the, than ways that human beings are, uh, creatively flowing and proliferating new things here. Um, you know, th- this is a beautiful book to me to read from a, um, uh, kind of a, almost like a deterministic or a structural perspective, because it allows you to see, well, how, how far exactly can people get out of the game? You know, how, how much can they do with it? And to me, it's not that much further. You know, I, I don't see ma- very many of these systems that are emergent from human and social behavior. I don't see them as, as being as, um, miraculous or as expansive maybe as Taylor does, which is not to say that I think that Taylor is wrong in any kind of way. It's just different ways of reading the same kind of material on the ground. But uh, I thought it was really, really helpful, um, you know, for helping me think those ideas and to think, you know, my own kind of framing here. And, you know, Taylor says on 154, uh, frames this, the question of, of structure versus culture and says, uh, this is an actual quote, does structure matter at all? And when I got to that point in 154, I went, yeah, it matters the most. <laughs> like, like for me, that's the thing that actually does matter the most. Structure is the thing that determines the cultural. Um, and culture instantiates itself across um, different uh, populations as structure. You know, um, th- those are one in the same in some ways for me. And I, I kind of read it in an oppositional stance to the way that Taylor does. Um, which, again, does not mean that we, I think, probably disagree in most of our analysis. We just disagree uh, with uh, the order of operations, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and reading this book also really made me think about how much more I care about aesthetics and the way that aesthetics determine the the way that we um, operate with things as opposed to, uh, Taylor, who really is looking at aesthetics quite often. I actually think those sections are really interesting where she's analyzing, like, what does a gnome necromancer look like? And then how does that enable someone to connect with it or not connect with it? But at the end of the day, I think in this book, a human social connection and the ability to chat or the ability to be a guild, uh, you know, member or whatever that will overcome aesthetics. A lot of the time it will overcome, uh, maybe structural components like game mechanics or whatever. And I'm not quite sure. I think that maybe those things still are, apply pressures that are understated sometimes um, and that need a little bit more fleshing out. Um, so hey, a lot of food for thought. I really enjoyed reading the book. I mean, it, it sounds like you did too. Yeah, no, I had a great time with this book. Like I said, I, I, it's one of those things where, you know, I, as I said, I did not read this because MMOs are not kind of my area of research. And then I sort of felt bad as I was reading it. Cause I'm like, actually I am interested in like just about everything that is being talked about here. So <laughs> Um, like I, I feel like, you know, bad scholar, but, uh, you got to make your call somehow. And, uh, then sometimes you start a podcast that makes you read things that you maybe normally wouldn't and you learn something incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, uh, we, you know, obviously from a different disciplinary angle, and from a different kind of perspective, but Taylor seems to be broadly interested in the the same questions you are, which is 
how how do a people create a practice mm-hmm. and how does that exist within something like you know in this case everquest and for you you know a uh, theatrical production mm-hmm. or homestuck we shall not speak its name <laughs> i was trying to toss you the segue to the ending there Oh, I'll take it. The uh, You can check out all the other things that we do. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoy this episode, you can go, if you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts, give it a five-star rating. Uh, that will help us out a whole lot. We're trying to make sure that we get that you know solid five-star rating, get cycled up in things, making sure more people are listening to it. If you uh, have anyone in your life who might enjoy the show in any kind of way, kick this over to him and say, hey, check this show out. I like it. I think it's worth listening to. It's free. It's not going to cost him anything. And uh, we don't spend any money on advertising. So if uh, you want other people to hear the show and get involved in game studies and things like that, if you know a game developer or uh, maybe an undergraduate who you think would benefit from listening to this um, and who hasn't had any formal introduction in the game studies, hopefully these are helpful and will help them kind of get an understanding of what's going on. Um, uh like I said at the beginning, it's also helpful if you just need a quick reminder about what's going on in a book. Um, so that's that's what the show's about. Please send it along. I think this is on Spotify as well if you want to listen to it over there. And you can go to rangetouch.com to see all the other stuff. We have a bunch of other shows such as Homestuck Made This World, a show that analyzes the internet phenomenon and webcomic Homestuck. If you've heard that before and you don't quite know what it is, our show is What Is For You. It's called Homestuck Made This World. You can find out more about it at rangetouch.com, which is down in the description below this episode. And we do a bunch of other shows as well, such as Too Much Future, where we play through and talk about the Fallout games. Or Just King Things, where we're reading through all of the work of Stephen King in publication order. We're in the early 1980s. You don't have to like Stephen King to listen to the show. You don't even have to know anything about Stephen King to listen to the show. Many people who don't have either of those things are way into it. I promise it's fun. It's a lot of me and Michael digging through the last 40 years of literary history and talking about whether or not Stephen King's a horror writer or not (laughs) (laughs) and uh, all kinds of stuff like that. So I I think you'll, if you enjoy uh, game study study buddies and you haven't checked out just King things, you should really give it a shot. I think you'll like it. Even if you're not into what uh, we're actually talking about, all of the things that range touch does does do range touch does are uh, supported by our patreon patreon.com slash ranged touch you can go to that link or you can go to range touch.com to get there as well everything we do is supported through that if you enjoy listening to game study study buddies and it's been helpful for you in the past think about throwing us a couple bucks a month three dollars a month one dollar a month five dollars a month any of that helps we you know uh if if every listener to this show if every listener of the show gave us a dollar a month uh, we would have a lot more money <laughs> than we do. <laughs> and that would be awesome because it takes a lot of time to prep for these episodes and it takes a lot of time to prep for all the other things that we do um, over here at Range Touch. So um, think about it. If you if you haven't supported us before, think about doing that. And we also have a t-shirt store that you can check out. We don't have anything that is Game Study Study Buddies related yet, but if you have a great idea for a Game Study Studies uh, t-shirt that you would purchase, Tweet it at us at twitter.com slash rangetouch, at rangetouch on Twitter. Let us know. We're looking for ideas of what we should do. We have not committed to a a game study study buddy shirt yet, but we want to. There's a a link in the description down below to our Teespring store. You can also go to rangetouch.com slash shop in order to get directed to our t-shirt store. 
Um, and I think you'll like all of that. I don't think I'm forgetting anything. Is that everything we need to talk about, Michael? Well, we haven't decided on what we're reading next time, but that's a conversation I guess we're going to have uh, in a little bit, and you will be able to find out what that next book is probably if you go to twitter.com slash range touch and and, uh, look around, and and at some point we'll we'll shout it out. Uh, And I think that's probably it, unless you are forgetting... Uh, as we all maybe sometimes do, that the social is predicated on its exclusions.